If you have a Bible, and you should, open up to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. In the gym, we tell the kids, if you don't, there's the back, there's some Bibles, but it doesn't happen here. So if you go to the back, there's nothing there. Maybe one of the ushers will bring you one. Um, 1 John chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 7 to 10. And um, I asked the guys, hey, can you guys do um, that, that kid's song, 1 John 4, 7 and 8? But um, they didn't go for it. Um, you remember that, right? Some of you guys um, are not that old, and you did that recently in Sunday school. Or your kids have done it. And, and Scripture is a good way to memorize. I mean, songs are a good way to memorize Scripture, you know. Uh, and... And worship songs do that. They, they remind us, uh, they direct us to scripture. Um, I, always, I always tell our worship leaders in the, in the, in the gym, you know, make sure that song, not because it sounds good, not because it moves you, but make sure that it's scriptural, that it, it reminds you of what the word of God says. Um, we want to make sure that, that it is biblical. Uh, nowadays, there's a tendency for, for a lot of worship songs to be more about uh, my feelings and my experiences, and I'm glad, you know, people have feelings and experiences, but um, it's not necessarily worship. Um, I remember one, when I got saved, one of the things that attracted me to Christian worship was that it reminded me of stuff that I had just read in the Bible. And you're like, ah, oh, that's, that's right, I just read that, and they made a song about it. How do they do this? You know? Uh, and if it doesn't do that, maybe it's not worship. But here are these verses, especially verses 7 and 8, you know, um, there's that song that comes and there's movements to that song. If you serve in the children's ministry, you know how that goes. You've probably done it. But, but these verses here and the two, the other two that follow, verses 9 and 10, um, are, are probably amongst the, the most treasure passages here in this epistle. But they're also the most misunderstood because of the way, uh, the, what people do with it. And we'll get into that a little bit. As we go through it, um, these passages, in actually this whole section, they speak of, of love that originates with God, uh, true love, real love, uh, the only love that matters, actually. And when you really think about it, the love that, that causes all other loves to be right when it begins with God. When you look at, at, at love in general and the different expressions, and we'll get into that, if it doesn't begin with God, it's going to be diluted or it's going to be corrupted. And then we have the issues that we have in the world today. And in these verses, we both see um, a description of God and his nature and then of the believers as a person who truly loves and knows God. Now, First John chapter 4, beginning there at verse 7, all the way to chapter 5, verse 3, <clears throat> it's the, uh, the third major, major division of, um, of, the, of this letter. Um, just to give you a little bit of background on the letter, uh, the main reason that the letter is written to to give the, the, the ones who are reading uh, assurance of their faith, and the reason a lot is because of the Gnostics and the the, uh, the false teachings that were coming in from that side. So he's writing this to them, and so this is the, the third of the major sections um, from chapter four, verse seven, to chapter five, verse three. And in it, John shows us, again, the nature and the result of Christian love. The first division is chapter 1, verse 5, to chapter 2, verse 17. Um, and we see there the Christian life and our assurance through, through our fellowship. And then the second division, chapter 2, verse 18 to 4, 6, we see the life of the believer and the conflict with the world. And you see that back and forth. Actually, just in verse 6, if you go up one verse, it says, And we are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth. In the spirit of error. So those things go on back and forth in that, in that second section. And now here is the third section. Um, and actually he's touched uh, on the love of God before, back in chapter 2 and in chapter 3. First John 2, 5 says, But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. And by this we know that we are in him. And in chapter 3, verse 11, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. But now in this section, John goes deeper into the theme of of True love, especially in relationship to in relation to the nature of God and how that um, does in our lives. And then within this major division, chapter four, verse seven to verse sixteen, we see um, it shows us the nature of of God's redeeming love in 
the second half of verse 16 to, to the end there of chapter 5, verse 3, he points to the result of his love in the life of the believers. Now, as we go through this today, and, and actually just encourage you to just read your Bibles, read through this section. You, you'll see uh, as well that the whole of this third division, we can see uh, the, the presence and work of this, of this God-originated love um, and, and what it does to us to further assure us in our Christian walk. I was talking to Pastor Tony, you know, you look at around you and, and your relationship with people, especially how things just sometimes don't work out. Just people do dumb stuff. And, and, and if kids are involved, they get in the middle of that mess. And if they look at those examples, sometimes they get a little tweaked of what the church is. But if they look at God and his everlasting love, his consistent love for them, they'll be okay. And, and I keep telling the kids, you know, the people in your life that got put in your life, they love you. They're, they love you like no one else, but they're people. Uh, you need to keep your eyes on Jesus. Your confidence needs to be in Christ. Um, the word for love in this third division appears some 31 times uh, in its different English combination of love, loves, and loved. Uh, but it's the same word in the Greek. It's the word agapao. It appears in 14 out of 20 verses. So you get an idea of what he's dealing with here. And now, as, as I just mentioned, the word that John uses for love is the word agapao, and it is one of, of four different words in the Greek for the word uh, for for love. In the English, we have one word for love, and it's the word love. Right? And we we said, I love my wife, um, I love my dog. I'm just saying that my dog is my dog. It's just my kids love my dog. I just he's nice. Uh, I love In and Out Burger, especially Neapolitan shakes. And we use the same word for love, but it is, it is the context that determines what the word love means and of what sort of love that is, right? So the context determines. If we confuse it, we get in trouble. If I say to, uh, to my wife, honey, I love you as much as I love the dog, I'll be in the doghouse, like right now. And, and we know not to say something. Like so the context determines, okay, that's what this, when I tell my wife I love you, and when I tell my wife, you know, I love in an hour, she understands the difference. So, in the Greek, besides the word agapa, which is the word for love that God has for us, uh, and we are to have for one another, there's, there's three other ones. And uh, by the way, the word agape or agapao, it only shows up in, in, in biblical text. You don't see it in, 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 um, outside of biblical text. So, so, we have the word phileo. And that's, that's the friend kind of love. That's the care that you have for a friend. Um, the, the, the word Philadelphia, uh, phileo means love, adelphos means brethren. So it's, it, it's the, the city of brotherly love. The other word is the word storgos or storge, which is natural affection, the love that a mother has for a child or, or, or a father for his children or his children for their parents. Um, this is family love. Now, Paul tells us that in the latter days, there will be a lack of this sort of love. Second Timothy 3, 1 says, but, now, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, and from such people turn away. That word unloving there in verse 3 is astorgos, without natural affection. And you look around today, and, and he says, you know, in the last days, and we're getting closer for not there already. You look at the way families treat, the way parents treat their kids and kids treat their parents and what they do to one another. Um, and every time you have the, word, the A in front of the word in the Greek, it's, it's a, uh, it means without or against. Uh, the word atheist, without God, right? Ephesians 2, uh, 11, actually 2.12, talking about us before we came to Christ. It says, at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. That world there is atheos, without God. And then the last word for love in the Greek is the word eros, which is sensual love, uh, sexual attraction, which is fine you know, within the confines of marriage, but when it's outside of God's design, uh, we get what the world tends to confuse a lot of times with love, um, and, and we get ourselves in the, in, the, in the troubles that we're at, sometimes the troubles that we've gotten ourselves when we were young adults before we came to the Lord for some of us, um, especially amongst young men in the world, you know. Um, 
they, they look at love and they have a different idea of what the Bible is or what the Bible says. So now that you know the different kinds of love, let's look at the one that matters. Uh, God's redeeming love here. Verse seven, he says, beloved, let us love one another for love is of God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. You can't read that without having that song in the back of your head. At least I, it stuck there for me. And so John begins this section that deals with the nature of God by, by calling them beloved uh, as an expression of his love for the readers. And the word there is agapitos, which comes from the same root word for the word for love throughout it. And he uses it, he uses it six times in this letter every time he addresses them. And, and it is to believers that he is writing. So, and I think you know that, but we need to keep that in mind. Sometimes we read this, it's like, who's, he's writing to believers. He's writing to people like you and I, people who have trusted Christ as Lord and Savior. And, and, and John is practicing what he's going to be preaching in a, section, in, in a second. He encourages and reminds them to love one another. He, he, is, he is loving them and being an example. And it's important for us to remember because a lot of times... Especially as we get older uh, and been walking with the Lord for some time, we are very quick to remind people of what the Bible teaches, but not be endures of it itself. Especially if we have kids. Hey, listen, the Bible. And if your kids get older, they're going to say, yeah, but you don't do that, Dad, or you don't do that, Mama. I don't, do, I don't see you doing that. And you got to make sure you take care of it. Jesus said earlier in, in chapter 3, verse 18, I'm, see, I'm sorry, John here, 1 John three eighteen says, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Uh, Paul brings up a similar point up in Romans 2 when he's talking about those who reject God and those who play games, but in reality are also rejecting God's truth. In Romans 2, verse 32 he says, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Therefore, he says, you're inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself for you who practice, you judge, I'm sorry, for you who judge practice the same things. And then in verse 3 of the next chapter, he says, and do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? He's talking to believers. Be careful. The people that play church, the, the hypocrites that sometimes, because I don't go to churches full of hypocrites, they're, they're, they're here. That, and you, you and I are, are without exception on that. We, we can fall into that if we're not careful, if, we, if we're not walking in the love of God and, and, and walking in obedience. We can become those people that, well, you shouldn't be doing that, but I, I can handle it and end up excusing it in my life. We need to make sure that we practice what we preach, Right? Practice what we say we believe, not just in words, because as you've heard, you know, as you hear sometimes words are cheap, but, but in truth and in deed and doing. There has to be evidence of that. Um, not what is convenient or when it is convenient. You know, obedience does not know convenience. Obedience doesn't know convenience, right? Convenience, right? It, it, when you're obeying, a lot of times it's not convenient, especially, especially if you're trying to be a witness to people in the world. It's not going to be convenient. So we can't be playing games. Now, John, he, he, pra he practiced what he preached, and when he called them his beloved, they, they knew he cared. It wasn't just something that he just said, because he had demonstrated that before, and he was demonstrating it here uh, uh, by his care through this letter. And he tells them, let us love one another. He includes himself in, in the call to mutual love. Uh, the verb is in the present tense, so the idea is that we are to continually love one another. Uh, there has to be a, a, rep a repeated expression of love, and it has to be reciprocal. But at the same time, as I'm loving, I'm not to be expecting others to do the same toward me. Because we, we a lot of times do that. I Sometimes I meet with, with couples and they're going through some, through some issues and, and they're like, okay, here's the problem. Somebody has to humble themselves, say, I'm sorry, so we can get things going. And they're like, well, I will if she, and she goes, and I'll do, but if he has to, no, 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 no. And never, nothing's going to work out. He says, we have to love one another. I have to love you. I'm not expecting anything back, but I, I am to love you. Now, in order for it to work perfectly, it has to be reciprocal. Right? In order for the church to, to function, that has to hit a two-way street. It is, it is a, a, call, a call to a God-like, unselfish love, freely given, that seeks the benefit of the one who is being loved. 
which is exactly what Jesus did. So it is primarily toward other believers, one another, right? But at the same time, um, the love expressed to the non-believer is not excluded because it is the love of God that we are expressing. And, and the world needs to experience that as we point them to Christ through the gospel uh, and, and, and the message of love from God. And we'll get into that as we go into verses 9 or so. But it is primarily to uh, the believer. Family first. We are to love one another. And then as we do that, we have opportunity to show that love to um, the non-believer. Galatians 6.10 says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially, he says, to those who are of the household of faith. So family first. Because the love of God that we are to express to one another, uh, it expresses itself best amongst believers who know God. He says that later here. That we know God. That reciprocity is not going to work with the non-believer because they don't know God. They don't know how to love like God, God, like love, uh, God loves. Now, you might wonder, how do we love one another? And of course, it has to be something that is tangible to those who are the recipients of our love in loving them the way that God loves them. And that is why John mentioned that we are not to just love in word, but in deed and in truth earlier in chapter 3, verse 18. And before that, he says in, in chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, he says, by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also have to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? So there is a practical aspect to it. As the Lord opens the door and you have an opportunity to, to express that and serve people, you do it. It is also our, our loving, practical demonstration of our faith by, by, by our works toward people. James deals with that in, in chapter 2. You know, and he even says there, you, know, you tell somebody that comes hungry and, and without clothes and says, be, be filled and clothed and go in peace, but you don't give them the food and you don't give them the clothes they need. How are you, how are you showing your faith in that? And, and love works the same way. We, we should tell people we love them. Yeah. Sometimes for us guys, it's kind of hard. Yeah. Your wife goes, I love you. Yeah. Tell your wife you love her. See, if you have girls, tell them you love them. Because if you don't, some gorilla is going to tell them. And she's going to think he's the cutest thing in the world. And then you're going to have to buy a shotgun. We are to tell people we love them. But there had, there had to be evidence of that love in our lives, personally and in the way we live to benefit the people around us. So our, our, our walk of obedience to God, right? That that's, that's, has to be there. And why do we do that? Because of the nature of this love. Look at the rest of 7 there. There it says, for love is of God. Excuse me. A little bit of a cold. John's words are grounded on the fact that this is no ordinary love. This love is divine in origin. This is a love that has its source in God. Uh, this is not the love of the world for self and those who are of the world. Because the, the world will love its own. And he mentions that here too in, in, in this letter. But it is a self-sacrificing love that comes from God himself and his love for us in and through, our, uh, through his son. Uh, John 3.16 just a summarized version of all that John is saying here. Um, uh, it, it points out perfectly. And John brings it up in the next two verses that we're going to look at. He says, And this is the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be propitiation for our sins. And, and, we can, and, and when we understand that, you can keep going. You go to 11. He says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And the exercise of this love shows us our character. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Those who love as God loves with a love that originates only from God are able, are able to do that because of their spiritual birth, because they're born of God. Uh, John introduces a similar idea but then it has to do with righteousness. In, in chapter 2, verse 29 of First John, it says, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. We're only able to live righteous lives because we're born again, right? We're only to be able to love as God loves 
because we're born again. Uh, spiritual birth, uh, birth precedes uh, us being able to practice the love of God. So this, this love in the life of the believer, it's, it's something that is evident as an activity. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lifestyle, actually, of the person who has eternal life, but there's also evidence that that life is there. And if you're born again, you have eternal life. And as such, you're able to love one another as God loves us. But also, but also John says, and knows God. And it comes in that order. Just like spiritual birth precedes a, a, a God-like love, spiritual birth also precedes knowing God. You cannot know God if you haven't been born again. Uh, without new birth, we cannot know God. We can know of God, but not know him. And, and that's where the majority of the world is at. Oh, I've heard of God. I know of God. This is what the Bible says. And, and you can have the greatest intellect and knowledge of the Bible, but if you don't personally know God, if anything, it, it, it doesn't excuse you. It makes it worse. And, and the knowing God is another way of speaking of the believer's personal relationship with God here. The phrase knows God is also in the present tense. And so it points to an ongoing experience where we get to know and understand God. And the longer we walk with him, the better we get to. But that's like, isn't a relationship like that? You're married and you've known your, you dated for two, three years and you know your wife or your husband. And then now you're married and now you get to know him even better because you didn't just drop him off and go home. You wake up on the same on the same bed, and you get to know him. And, and as time passes, you know him well. You know him better, and you know him better. There's a relationship. And as you walk with the Lord and you spend time in his word, you get to know him. You know him, and you will continue to know him, and, and your knowledge of God will increase. Your relationship with him will do that. As Paul prays for the Colossians, Colossians 1.10 says that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And we should be increasing in the knowledge of God. These are, these are distinctive marks of believers, the love of God and the knowledge of God in our lives. And the opposite then is also true, demonstrating the character of the one who is not born again. Look at verse 8. He who does not love does not know God. The absence of, of a God-like love in the life of a person proves that he or she does not know God. If they do not know God, then they have not been born again. They do not have eternal life. Now, for you and I as believers, because he's writing to believers here too, we, um, we, have, we need to be careful that we do not neglect our walk with God. Because in that neglect, the love of God cannot fully manifest itself through in and through our lives, right? So I have to make sure that I'm walking. Uh, someone once said, the person who fails to commune with God in prayer and neglects to read the Bible cannot be the instrument through which God demonstrated his divine love. So the non-believer cannot, cannot do that. They don't have, they cannot love. But I have to be careful. If I'm, I'm not walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, if I'm, in, in, I'm walking in the flesh and fulfilling the desires of my flesh, the love of God is not going to be manifested in and through my life. And then he says, for God is love. Now, John is not pointing out a quality that God has, but he is pointing to his nature. Uh, this, is, this goes hand in hand with other statements of the nature of God. Even in this letter, um, actually in this letter, one of them, another, like John four twenty four says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. That's the nature of God. First uh, John 1, 5, this is the message which we have heard from him and declared to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness. Does that mean that God is a light bulb? No, it's, it's his nature. These, these, these point out to the different aspects of the nature of God. Uh, and it's also very important that we understand that the statement, God is love, is not interchangeable. You can say God is love, but you cannot say love is God. And some people have made that mistake. So, well, God is love, therefore love is God. No. When you do that, you open a, a, a can of worms full of pantheism, which is the belief that all reality is identical with divinity, and meaning that everything is God and God is in everything. And there's people out there that do that, and they go out there and they hug trees and they worship crystals, and, and they think that everything is God, and that God's in the chair and God is in this person. No, 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 no. Paul made that clear in Romans 1, 20 to 25. says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse because although they knew God, 
They did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were uh, darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, and the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. That's, that's where the world is at. Also, some people bring, up, bring out the, the idea that, well, if God is love, how can he allow bad things to happen? Or how can he, you know, why do people go, if God is love, why do people go to hell? The fact that God is a person, his nature, his love, does not invalidate the fact that he is also holy and righteous. And so all aspects of his nature work together to determine his actions and his responses. Uh, someone once said, because he is love, God works against whatever works against love. I like that. Because he is love, he works against whatever works against God. And every time we use the word love in reference to God is agape. is a sacrificial love for you and I that he demonstrated in sending his son. Now, you and I and every person that ever lived, all of fallen humanity, would have never known this love apart from the fact that God revealed his love to us through his son, right? He's the one who did it. God is love, and true, real, biblical love originates with God, and is manifested to you and I by God. How we respond to that love makes all the difference in eternity, doesn't it? How I respond to the love of God in my life makes all the difference. The world complains about God and how if he was a God of love, again, he can send people to hell. But when you understand the love of God and the character of God and you look at what the word of God says and, and his revelation to us and, and his love for all, for, for all of humanity, his love for lost humanity, you're not going to be asking those questions. You're going to go, I, I understand how God loves him. Do, do we know all of how God, love, God's love works in our life now? When we, when we see him face to face, John also says, you know, when we see him, we'll, be, we'll see him as he is. But we will know as we are known and we will see him as he is. Okay, but until then, I stick to the word of God. Again, how we respond to the love of God makes all the difference, right? Especially when it comes to eternity. Do you know love? And I'm not talking about love, but do you know love? Do you know love? If you know God, you know love. If you know God, you know love. You see, because God revealed his love to us, and it did not originate with us, then all of our definitions of love must come from God. If not, then they're absent of truth and reality. It becomes a love as the world understands it, which is not, it's not, it's not this love. So you and I, especially you, know, you and I as believers, we have a responsibility to understand God's love if we claim to know him. And John helps us understand the love of God by giving us evidence. Look at verse 9. And here God manifests his love in the incarnation. He says, In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. That phrase, in this, is used by John several times. A lot of it in chapter 3 but it gives us a glimpse of how John wants to make sure that the readers have evidence and therefore assurance of what they believe. In 1 John 2, 3, it says, Now by this we know that we know him. Here is the evidence that we know that we know him. 1 John three ten. In this the children of God and the children of the, the devil are manifest. Here is the evidence of who the children of God are and who the children and, and how they're manifested. What? How, how they show up. First John 3.16, by this we know love. Here's the evidence that we know love. First John 3.19, and by this we know that we are of the truth. Here's the evidence. First John 3.24, and by this we know that he abides in us. First John 4.2, by this you know the spirit of God. First John 4.13, by this we know that we abide in him. And first John 5.2 later, he says, by this we know 
that we love the children of God. Every time he does that, he's presenting evidence. He points to evidence or proof. This is how you know. In this case, proof of God's love manifested to us, right? And that, that phrase, in this, in, in verse 9, there points to the that there in the verse. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God. So the in this points to the that. To the that. So you could actually translate, this is how God showed his love to us. This, here's the evidence of how God showed his love. And that love was exemplified in the sending of his son. The, the incarnation of Christ, it's the unmistakable show of God's love toward us. You want to know how much God loves you? His son. His son coming, living here, dying here for our sins, rising from the grave. You want to know love, you look at the sun. And the word manifested means to make it evident, to make it apparent, to make it visible or clear, to come out uh, into the open. So it, it's understood then what John's saying is that before the coming of Christ, this love had not been displayed in such a personal and world-encompassing way. You look at the Old Testament, and believers died in faith looking to a promise that they had not, they did not get to see while alive. Looking to the future when God would become flesh and dwell amongst us, right? Uh, if you, you know, go to Hebrews chapter 1, actually all of Hebrews, uh, chapter 1, but especially chapter 11, but Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, God who at various times and at various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also we, ha- we made the worlds. And then if you go through Hebrews 11, all the way from verse 1 on, you have all these people who died in faith looking for that promise. Um, and in verse 13 of Hebrews 11, he says, These all died in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen them from afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Now, we have had that love personally demonstrated to us in his son. And so God acted and showed his love toward us, he says here. That word could also be translated among us or in us. And when you think about it, he demonstrated his love toward us, he demonstrated his love among us, and he demonstrated his love in us. And he does that continually. Um, It is God who manifested his love, made his love evident to man in his son, by sending his son, right? John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But God also made his love evident to us as Christ made his dwelling with us. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. And later he says, um, then in verse 14, it said, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Same word. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then God also demonstrated his love in and through his Son, who is now in us. And earlier in, in chapter 4, verse 4, John said here in First John, says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So he is among us, with us, and in us. And all of that involves us, you and I, as recipients of God's love. And it is his son whom he sent. Not just any messenger, as it says in, in, in Hebrews, the prophets, but his only begotten son. And that points back to the relationship between the father and the son. It points to, the eterni- to eternity before the incarnation when Jesus enjoyed perfect and uninterrupted fellowship with the father. As we just read in, in John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus in John 17.5, as he's praying, that, that's actually the Lord's Prayer there in John 17. It says, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And John describes him as the only begotten Son. Jesus is the only one. God the Father only has one Son, and He is God the Son, and in that He has no equal, and He's the only one who can fully show us the Father. 
Now, the, God the Father has many children, right? You and I, if we're in Christ. But he only has one son. And he says that he was sent. The word is apostella. We get the word apostles from. He was sent. But when you look at scripture, you also see that not only was he was sent, he came of his own will. John 5.30, he says, I can of myself do nothing as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but do the will of the Father who sent me. But then in John uh, 12.46, it says, I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. He was sent in obedience to the will of his Father and, and willingly he came himself, right? Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of man, and being found in appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He was sent, but he also came. Now you and I are also sent. Jesus in his prayer for us in John 17, verse 18, he says, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. It's the same word. Sent out. Are we being obedient and willing just as the son? We're being sent. Do we want to go? And why are we sent out? Jesus continues there in John 17, 23, he says, I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. You and I are witnesses to this world of, of God's love. We are the ones he wants to use. And we are witnesses of the only one by whom we can have eternal life. There in verse 9 says that we might live through him. Apart from him, we do not have life. Apart from Christ, we were spiritually dead before we came to the Lord. I got saved when I was 25 years old. I was dead. I, I didn't think I was back then. I thought I had it going on, but I was dead. Just as the world is today of those who do not have Christ as their own Savior. Ephesians 2, 1 to 5, actually Ephesians 2, 1, says, And you he made a life who were dead, and trespass and sin. And then in verse 4 and 5 of Ephesians 2 says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespass and sins, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. So Christ came to give us life. And also in Christ we have eternal life. And we can maintain that eternal life here while here in this life in him. You see, this life that is from God is not just future life in heaven. Um, eternal life begins here when you give your life to the Lord, right? In Christ, we have the life here in this life, meaning that we live for eternity now. And then we'll continue to live into eternity. Life in Christ includes the removal of spiritual death, but also the, re the return of true spirit-filled life for the believer and then the end result, the enjoyment of eternity in heaven. Some people, they get caught up and focus on the security of having their sins forgiven, and therefore they're safe from judgment. That's all they care. But nothing else happens in their life. Others look only to the future when they will be with Christ, but ignore everything else. And they just sit and wait for Jesus to come back. We also have eternal life here. And we're able to do that only through him. Only through him. John 17 again, verse 3. This is Jesus praying and it says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom we have sent. When do we get to know God? Now. This is eternal life, that they may know you. Now. I don't have to wait until I get to heaven to know God. I know him a lot better. Because this, this dumb brain's not going to get in the way. But I, get, I can know God now personally. Now the love of the Father that sent his Son that we might live is connected to the self-sacrifice of the incarnate Son of God. So God manifested his love in the atonement. Look at verse 10. 
And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us uh, us and sent his son to be propitiation for our sin. God is not loved by the world. Uh, John is stating that as a matter of fact. He is not loved by the world. Now, when you talk to people, normal people are not going to go, if you ask me, do you hate God? I don't hate God. Normal people, some crazies out there say, I hate God. He doesn't exist, but I hate him if if he did. The reality is that this world does not naturally love God. He's saying, and this is love. Not that we love God. And John says we. He includes himself. We have not loved God. We in our fallen state, before we came to Christ, we did not love God. Now, when I was a young man, if you said, you don't love God, it's like, oh, yeah, I do. I was a, a good Catholic boy. Well, in my own mind, I was a good Catholic boy. I love Jesus. I love baby Jesus, his mom, especially around Christmas time. We have not loved God. We in our fallen state did not love God. And John is aware of this. He's, he includes it. He's aware of his sin apart from Christ. He is aware of where he was before he came to Christ. And you and I cannot forget that before we surrender our lives to Jesus, we were dead in trespasses and sins. I hang around with, with junior high and high schoolers. And some of those kids have grown up in church. And it's great because they didn't have to put up with the junk that I put up all the way until I was 25 years old. Because that comes with, with baggage, doesn't it? Consequences don't go away sometimes. But sometimes I see a disconnect. They've been saved all their lives. We know that's not true. We know that there's a point in their life, and, and, it, and it becomes a little bit more apparent as they get older where they have to make a decision right around 13. And then sometimes for those who take them a little bit longer, 18, 19, and then there's those who, you know, until they get married and their wives just knock them around a little bit, those boys get, get their act together. But, but there's a point where they're like, hey, you know what? I've been going to church with mommy and daddy and they've been telling me, you know, Jesus loves you, you need to love Jesus. And I love Jesus because my mom and dad said so. But there is a point where I have to go, wait, wait, where's my relationship with God? I remember the day when I went from being separated from God because of my sins to being saved. I remember exactly where I was. And, and it's not that I want the kids to go, you know, you need to go out there in the world and get beat up a little bit so you can figure out how much Jesus loves you because I don't want them to have to deal with that. But there's a little bit of a disconnect then. And, and, and we cannot forget that. We not, cannot forget that before we came to Christ, we were dead in trespasses and sins. Romans 3.23 says that, right? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners saved by grace through faith. Ephesians 2.8. It is God who loved us. His love is the original love and the source of all other love. And again, it's very important that how we respond to God's revelation of his love to us through his son. Can't forget that. How he does that, we need to, how we respond to that makes a difference. Because we have his son as payment. That's what the word there is, atonement for our sin. Sent his son to be propitiation for our sins. Hebrews 9.28 says, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Christ paid the ultimate price for you and I. And we say this, you know, Jesus took my sins. I think we all, after we say that, we need to stop and think about it. He took my sins. He took yours. He suffered so that we and anyone who accepts his sacrifice would not have to suffer eternally apart from God in hell. Again, how you respond to God's manifestation of his love to you and his son makes eternal difference. Jesus in Matthew twelve thirty to 32, he says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, 
It will not be forgiven him either in this age or the age to come because the Spirit of God points us to Christ and the love of the Father through his Son and his death on the cross for you and I. And we reject that. We're, we're reacting, responding to the love of God in a way that it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to separate us from God if we reject it. John later says in 1 John 4.19, we love him because he first loved us. And people get into all kinds of weird stuff. Well, you know, we were, we, we, we loved us and does that mean that he loved us before we even did? And, and if I wouldn't accept it, does he still? Well, he loves you. And it's a gift, you know, and gift only work when you accept them. I come to your house for your birthday and I give you a gift and you all think so you throw it. You're never going to receive the benefit of that gift. It's like, oh, no, thanks for coming. Throwing it in the, in the corner with a bunch of other gifts. God loves the world. That, that's his gift, his son. How we respond to that makes a difference. Have you been born again? Have you been born again? Do you know God? And it will be evident in your love for, one, for God and for one another. It will be evident in your continual growth in your relationship with God because you know God. A love that originates with God and it is only evident in the life of those who have been born of God uh, or, or as Jesus told Nicodemus uh, of his need to those who have the need to be born again, right? John 3, 3. He says, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again into new life, primarily a spiritual life when it comes to my relationship with God, but that in turn affects every aspect of my life. I, the moment a believer is a person is born again, he is he is in a personal relationship with Christ. His sins have been forgiven. His his eternity is assured. He has his future. It's it's all in here. How things are going to go down? What's going to happen? But also, it affects every aspect of my life. Things change. You're not the same. You're, Paul says you're, we are a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. There is, there is evidence to the born-again thing. And the main one is the love of God in our lives and how that is uh, shown to other people. A life lived not in the power or strength of our flesh, but lived in the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. 1 Peter 1.23 says, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And he also says, you, you haven't been purchased with silver or gold or anything. You, you were purchased with the precious blood of Christ. As of a lamb without spot and blemish. Your new life in Christ is not, it's not of this world. It does not have its origin in this world like your natural life did. But our spiritual life is incorruptible, it's immortal, it's everlasting. And all of it because of who it is that provided for this life and how he provided for it. And actually, uh, I quoted myself ahead of time, First Peter 1 Peter 1.18. It's right here, I should have stuck to my notes. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct, Received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And so those who are born again, they know God. They have a personal relationship with him as Lord and Savior. And because they know God, they know the love of God. They, can, they have experience and they can continue to experience the love of God and are able to love one another as he loves. Your life as a believer is defined by the love of God. You, you, you look at God and you look at his work through his son. It's all there. We take our eyes off the cross. We take our eyes off Christ. We get ourselves in trouble. And we know this. You know, we tell him, keep your eyes on Jesus. We tell him. And we know, but we do it ourselves. Do you know God? And if you know God, you know love. Young man will tell young ladies, I love you. 
means something completely different than what they think it means. And even when they say to them back, I love you, unless it's grounded in their walk with the Lord, their personal relationship with Christ, and in the love of God. Because the love of God defines every aspect of our lives and all the other loves. And so when I look at the love of God, I, when it tells me I'm, I'm to love my wife, I know I'm to do that. When I have to love my friends, I know I'm to do that. When I have to love my children, I understand how that works. Because it starts here. Even, even in, in, in when it comes to your, your marital relationship, it starts here. Outside of that, we make a mess of it. It goes back to, to this. Have you been born again? Do you know God? Do you know he loves you? And if you do, then you know love, the love of God. If you don't, take care of it tonight. Peter tells us that God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Hell was not designed for, for, for people. But sin has to be judged, right? He sent his son as a sacrifice for that sin so that we would not be separated from him. If you don't have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior tonight, make the decision. Surrender your life to him. It's not convenient, but it's important. It, it, how you respond to God's love in your life will make, will make the difference in eternity. And for the rest of us who have a personal relationship with Christ, we need to continue to grow in that relationship. We need to continue to grow in that love of God. He says... He says in 17 later, this love has been perfected among us in that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. That's, that's something that's continually happening. That word for perfect is made, made complete. God's love has is, is been made complete and is being made complete continually as we walk with him. And he's talking about abiding in Christ and abiding in his love in him and us and us and him. Takes us back to John 15 when Jesus says, if you, you abide in me as, as a branch in the vine, if you don't, you get cut off and thrown into the fire. I always tell girls, you know, when a boy brings you flowers, he's bringing you dead plants. So make sure it comes in a pot and it's got roots. That's how I get away from giving flowers. No, I'm just kidding. Do you know Jesus Christ is your and Savior? And for those, for those who know Christ, are we abiding in him? Are we abiding in his love? Our eyes fixed on him, or are we looking to the right or to the left and distracted with everything this world has? It'll get us in trouble. It'll keep us from, from what he has for us. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name. Lord, we thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for saving us. Lord, thank you for sending your son so that we might live through him. Thank you for sending your son to be, to be the payment for our sins, Lord. And thank you for continually showing us in your word and then in the work, the continual work that you're doing in our lives, the evidence of your love. You've loved us from the day we surrender our lives. That's being demonstrated. You loved us before that, but we were blind. And you love us now and you will continue to love us, Lord. There is no love like that anywhere in the world. There's no consistency like that anywhere but in you, Lord. And we thank you. Help us not, not to forget. Help us not to go and get caught up with this world, distracted with it, and understanding we have the greatest love that ever existed and is being poured in us by, by the creator of this universe, Lord. We love you, Lord. We thank you. And we ask things in Jesus' name. Amen.